Abolition. 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 What we're being tasked to do, and let me sum up, in California is to consider the following. To consider executing more people than any state in modern American history. To line up human beings every single day for execution for two plus years. To line people up to be executed, premeditated, state-sponsored executions, one a week for over 14 years. That's a choice we can make, or we can make, I think, a more enlightened choice to advance justice in a different way. There was a National Academy of Science report that came out that estimates one out of every 25 people on death row is innocent. If that's the case, that means if we move forward executing 737 people in California, we will have executed roughly 30 people that are innocent. I don't know about you, I can't sign my name to that. I can't be party to that. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Let me be clear. My opposition to the death penalty is rooted in a few things. One, we get it wrong way too often. It's a technological argument, right? We swear people did it until we find out they didn't. Find out they didn't. Find out, right? And we've had too many cases where we were convinced somebody did it until they didn't. Until they didn't. Right? Except they're dead. The second thing is, I don't think the state has the moral authority to kill its citizens. To kill its citizens. To kill its citizens. No nation that has executed this many Native Americans that has allowed the Tuskegee experiment to happen, that has enslaved its, its own, that has built on the exploitation and enslavement of its own people, has the moral authority to decide who gets to live and who gets to die. Third reason is it doesn't work. Because you, you, your, your point was you should go into any situation knowing that if you do this thing, this is going to happen. The implicit argument of that is that it will dissuade people from doing it, right? That if I knew I was going to get killed for this, maybe I won't kill somebody. But all the data, all the evidence, all the science throughout American history shows that the death penalty actually doesn't make people less likely to kill. In fact, there are states, there are states where, where there's a death penalty, murder rates are actually higher. Okay. So, someone breaks into your house. Uh-huh. And they're armed. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you see that they're in your house with a gun. Do you try to kill them? Yes. Okay. I'm defending so, myself. It, so, in a way, you're actually enacting the death penalty on this person. Yes. Remember, I said the state doesn't have the capacity and the moral authority to do it. I didn't say individuals didn't. And also, here's the other difference. The state isn't the state operating in self-defense. I believe in protecting life. I'm, I'm shooting that person to protect life. The state is not doing it to protect life. Uh, but, um, the most humblest individual that you could ever meet. I'm not here. I'm not with kind. I'm not with well mannered. I'm not with, I mean, like I basically say all the time, to know I'm not is to love I'm not. And I believe people could have really got to know Amad to really, really love Amad because Amad was love. Honestly, I really do think that the, the parties involved should be um, given the death penalty. You know, my son was she was shot and killed. Um, Amad wasn't given a chance. He wasn't given a chance to to live. He chose to fight and he still was killed. So, I think that they should give with Amata. I just want him to be 
to be successful. Um, he was 25, and um, Ahmad wouldn't have had a chance to do anything that he that he chose to do. And I used to always tell I mean, all my kids, you know, as long as you're above ground, you have the opportunity to do whatever you want to do. Abolition. 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 You just heard the Max Mix, the cruelest cut, with audio clips from California Governor Gavin Newsom, a Vlad TV debate excerpt from Mark Lamont Hill, and it concluded with Wanda Cooper Jones, Ahmaud Arbery's mother. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived broadcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Yusuf Hassan, and once again, I'm flying solo. This is the third and final week of our reviews of earlier episodes. I'm really missing having my brother Max Parthas here to hold dialogue with as we address every aspect of the 13th Amendment Exception Clause, as well as all of its effects on the 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Tonight we will review Episodes 11 and 12 from May 24th and May 31st, 2020, which were dedicated to breaking down the two parts of the 8th Amendment. We covered a lot of material in those two episodes, and I want to replay as much of them as possible. So without further ado, here's a segment of Episode 11, The State of the Eighth Amendment, where we dealt with the death penalty. So let's get to it. We can sit here and chat, you know, for an hour and a half or so about something that's very important that's going on every day in our lives and how... We always make the link to the 13th Amendment for it, Max. The 13th Amendment is something else, man. It was so cunningly devised and so devious that just by its very existence, once it applies to you, you lose all rights as a human being, as a citizen. Uh, The Constitution doesn't even apply to you. Even if you get out and you're free now and you paid your dues, you are still a non-person who still has to pay taxes even though you don't even get to vote in an election for the people who represent you. Uh, you don't get to get any of the benefits that a citizen will be applicable for. Once you get out, you can't get help with housing, help with income. Uh, you can't get none of that. Anything state-sponsored is just not going to happen. So, yeah, it's terrible circumstance, man. And, you know, another story about this past week, I heard that damn near the entire neighborhood conspired to hunt and capture a mob. Uh, they used a Facebook group to coordinate it. I heard that the father, uh, being a former cop, wasn't racist, and his son was an open bigot, and everybody knew it. This came from Sean King. And according to his report, this was with premeditated murder where Facebook members of the neighborhood group literally wrote that they would kill somebody. And it was a statement that went unopposed in that group. And uh, just recently, Friday, William Roddy Bryan Jr. was arrested on charges of, charges of felony murder and criminal attempt imprisonment. He was the guy that was doing the videotaping, and you hear the gun click like he had one and was ready to go to. Witnesses right. say he was playing 
this game of bumper car on a mod where he had already tried to block him on several locations, literally chasing him around in his car and cutting him off as he's trying to get away. This is why it took like four minutes to run him down when he was finally shot. Yeah, when you when you mentioned that Facebook group, you know, depending on the type of conversations that were being held, many of those members should be subjected to either conspiracy charges, you know, conspiracy to commit murder or felony murder. I mean, there are people who are sitting in prison right now for less than that with those type of charges on felony murder and uh, conspiracy to commit murder. So hopefully heard the video from Sean King, you know, and I'm hoping that they follow up with everything. They really need to dig deep into what was actually said. And, you know, there are people that, like I said, they're sitting in prison based on things that they say on Facebook or in conversation. So they really need to dig deep into that. And hopefully that as much justice as possible to uh, Ahmad Avery's family can be gotten. Get them all. Get them all. They all, you know, deserve anyone who conspired in any manner, whether it's he's on the block right now. That's enough. I mean, people do that in the hood. He's on the block right now. He's over second sex right now. See, all of that, that's part of a conspiracy right there when you start doing things of that nature. So, yeah, Max. It's part of a modern-day lynching in the system of slavery and human trafficking. That included a former slave catcher. Terrible, man. And, you know, speaking of uh, circumstances like that, we have been uh, talking about Khalif Browder last week during the Sixth Amendment. Uh, We basically said that, you know, the Sixth Amendment and how it's being violated can be really expressed through Khalif Browder and what happened to him. Uh, It was a perfect example of the violations of his Sixth Amendment rights, but also of his Eighth Amendment rights. And tomorrow would have been his 27th and uh, his brother, Akeem Browder, reached out to me today to invite uh, us to attend and participate in an online celebration of his birthday tomorrow. So I'll provide that link, or it'll be provided on Abolition Today. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, tomorrow's his birthday, man. we got to remember him. Uh, like I remember Lawrence Myers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, yeah. Yeah, I know that, that's what started it for you here in Lawrence Myers. You know, and yes. you 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 gave me the history on that, and and I yeah, got some good man. news in today too, brother. <laughs> Somebody sent me a, a link, a brother by the name of, or online by the name of Matt Grabber. Uh, he he sent me a link to a Native American slavery abolitionist that's running for president in the U.S. in 2020. His name is Mark Charles, and. I have been looking at some of his materials. I was very happily surprised to find such a thing, man. You, you fit all the criteria we could possibly want. So let me look a little bit more into his policies and discussions. Talk to him. Hopefully we can get him here on air on Abolition Today, where he can talk about uh, abolition with abolitionists. Absolutely. <laughs> that would probably be a unique experience. <laughs> yeah, that's great because uh... – I always I, I have to re- recall this gentleman's name, the gentleman who ran for office down in South Carolina with you, who ran on the abolition platform. Coma. What's, David what's, Coma. What's his name? David Coma. 
Coma. I have to get that name etched into my memory so I can mention him. And now we have this gentleman. What did you say his name was again, Max? Uh, This is Mark Charles. Mark Charles. Okay, and he actually checks all the boxes, you know, when it comes (laughs) to somebody who who we would want to have out there. You know, when you talk about going on an abolitionist platform, I mean, we know the importance of abolition, and we know the role the 13th Amendment or the exception clause to the 13th Amendment plays in the injustice system as well as the economics of the United States. So that's huge. Right. It is big. And there's a couple other stories uh, that I want to get, but I'm going to go through them real quick because I want to get to this first clip. Uh, But the other story is, you know, I was inspired by our comrades at Pumps for Progress. They put a video out where uh, there was an organized uh, protest in Ohio regarding four fatalities at the hands of the police in just a very short period of time, including a pregnant woman who was run down by a police car and both her and the baby died. And the uh, protests were mainly abolitionist protests. They were talking about the 13th Amendment and modern slavery and slave catching. And it just, dude, you know, it's sad, but it, it gave me some hope to hear people out there really nailing it, you know, getting to the point of the problem. And then later on, uh, I watched Rising a few days ago from The Hill, and the news anchor there, Crystal Ball, described Joe Biden as the architect of mass incarceration. I'm like, I wonder where they heard that. We have been saying that for years. We feel like the architect of not mass incarceration, but slavery and genocide. So they just took it and made it a little bit more palatable, but it is the truth, the architect of mass incarceration. And speaking to Joe Biden in a live stream recently when informed that uh, – Charlemagne the God had more questions before the election was over and, and invited him to come to New York to talk to him about these things. You know, that bastard says that if you got a problem figuring out whether you're for me or for Trump, then you ain't black. This is what Joe Biden said, the architect of modern slavery and genocide, who birthed all of these for-profit prisons that are now global monstrosities of the largest corporations on earth, whose son was a freaking coke fiend and sat on the, uh, stood on the floor of the Senate arguing about how he had to grow up in a racial jungle and how we had to be brought to heel. He didn't care about how we became criminals. We were criminals. Right. We deserved to pay and go to prison. This guy had the nerve to decide for us who's black and who ain't based on how we feel about him. Wow. The gall, Yeah, the, 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 the nerve. I mean, that, that took some real nerve to see that. Considering some real is, nerve to oh see that. God. You know, that's like the slave catcher coming onto the plantation and beating somebody down because they're racist. <laughs> You're a racist. Bam, bam, bam. Right. Oh and, God, and, this guy and when stupid. you look at it, many of his laws are still in effect to today. To this day, still right. Talking about many of them, many of those laws are still in effect. I mean, how many people are doing fifty years for stealing a slice of pizza or jumping a turnstile? You know, many small things that all come out right. of that crime, nineteen ninety four crime bill. 
And, you know, the with, death penalty is one of those things that they right. have to deal with uh, in this crime bill. So uh, at one point, you're going to give us the history of the death penalty, but let's, let's really get into this first clip and, and give an example of who we're talking about, what we're talking about today, and we want the people who are directly involved in it or affected by it to really tell their stories for themselves. So I have the first clip, and it comes from uh, a story on Glenn Ford, who spent 30 years on death row in Louisiana for a murder he didn't commit. And due to cancer that went untreated while in prison, he, he died in 2015, less than 16 months after his conviction and death sentence were vacated, and he was released. He was 65, and the state of Louisiana refused to compensate him in any way. So the clip that we have is Marty Stroud, the prosecutor, apologizing to Glenn Ford. And then we also added in Glenn was not a part of the original clip. Here you go. Abolition. 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 Well, Mr. Ford, I passed crossed, as you know, many years ago. I was a young prosecutor, and you were sitting in jail, a much younger man. I was one of the individuals who was, on behalf of the state of Louisiana, that was trying a case against you in which the state of Louisiana was seeking the death penalty. You must have felt numb back then because the lawyers you had were well-intended, but they didn't have any experience. It was a an all-white jury. You must have felt awful alone in that courtroom. The case was tried and you were found guilty. It must have been a horrible feeling. And thereafter, the jury, which was composed of an all-white jury, sentenced you to death. You were thereafter sentenced and sent to Angola where you spent 30 years in a cell, more like a cage cut off from other individuals, basically in solitary confinement, until evidence was discovered that you, in fact, had not been guilty of the offense. In fact, that, that had the evidence uncovered by the state been known back in 1984, you would not, there would not have even been enough evidence to try you, much less, or to arrest you, much less to try you on. I can only imagine what life was like for you on death row. I've been on death row, I've seen death row, you were <clears throat> at Angola, you were approximately a five by seven jail cell. You had no contact with anyone else. You were fed through a tray pushed through the door. And it must have been a living hell for you for those 30 years. Day after day, week after week, month after month, doing nothing but sitting in a small cell thinking about what had happened to you that you were here for a crime that you did not commit. I'm sorry that 
Well, I'm sorry for what I did to you, did to your family.
yeah, I just I didn't I didn't I didn't hear any sincerity in it, you know, because I've heard plenty of closing arguments and it's it sounded like a closing argument basically that he was just trying too hard to convince me, you know, that he that he uh, meant no ill or anything. Now nah, I'm not buying it, Max. I'm sorry, man. All right, I feel you on that too, man. <clears throat> like I said, one in twenty-five. Uh, just you know, in the clip we started the whole program. The governor said just the state of California uh, alone had seven hundred and twenty-seven people, I believe, that were on death row. And then we have another news clip. We found out that in order to house them since nineteen seventy-six, the state spent four billion dollars which uh, divided out to about $308 million per person executed. So that's what we're paying to kill somebody, $308 million a head rolled, um, and uh, in horrible ways sometimes. Some of the horror stories are outrageous. And out of all of those people we're constantly killing in the name of justice through a state that has practiced slavery and genocide, in oppression, uh, one in 25 are innocent. Yusuf? Those numbers are just astronomical and so unreal. When you really think about the alternative with what that type of money can do, $308 million to execute someone. Mm. To execute. $308 million to execute someone. Right. Not three hundred and eight million dollars to provide food and housing to the homeless. Not three hundred and eight million dollars to overhaul to the uh, educational system. Not three hundred and eight million dollars to help working uh, parents or working, uh, yeah, working parents with aftercare. You know, not three hundred and eight million dollars to fix up parks or you know, after-school programs for children, $308 million to kill one person. That's right. But you won't pay a dime to help them. Won't pay a dime. Won't won't give them a dime to better their lives in any way, shape, or form. Um, Right. It's the same thing with the criminal injustice system with the arrests and the incarceration. And like Cleese Bradder, in order to incarcerate him for three years, was nearly a million dollars that was generated at $350,000 a year to incarcerate him. Again, primarily in solitary confinement, which the U.N. has determined is torture. And we know too many people who have been tortured like this for decades and decades. And tonight we want them all to tell their own stories as best they can about the Eighth Amendment and what's happening with this aspect of it. And uh, I'll read the Eighth Amendment out loud so people know know what it says. Uh, passed, it's the excessive fines, cruel, and unusual punishment passed by Congress September 25, 1789, ratified December 15, 1791. The first ten amendments of, of formed the Bill of Rights, and this says shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. And what we are hearing today is that death and the torture you apply before you kill somebody most certainly applies as cruel and unusual punishment. And it's not just us saying it. It is court cases that have shown this to be the exact case. Um, you know, a lot of us are just dead men walking when it comes to this prison system. You get accused. You get railroaded. Uh, sometimes in Louisiana, 
you get railroaded through a 10 and 2, where you have 10 uh, jurors that can convict you, not 12, but 10. And it was something that was used in order to continue with all white juries so they could bring in a couple of people of color and then not have their vote count at all and have 10 white people decide who lives and dies. So right now they're going through that in Louisiana as we speak. Although in 2018 it was allegedly uh, abolished, it still applies to people that are in jail right now. You know, the the more we look into these amendments, we just see, man, I mean, we're talking over two centuries of just a farce being carried out on the people of the United States. And we talk about the Constitution all the time, and I'm convinced people are not reading the Constitution because if they're reading the Constitution, then they say, no way, no way. If they're, if they're woke, you know, if their eyes are open, their ears are open, and they're paying attention to what's going on, they say, nah, the Bill of Rights is a farce. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment are farces, with the exception of the exception clause. That's working well. But when you look at the rest of it, you say, well, why is it even there? Why would you well, say excessive bail should not be required, no excessive fines imposed, no cruel and unusual punishments inflicted, but yet that's all we're seeing every single day, excessive bails, excessive fines, cruel and unusual punishments? It's not so much that the Bill of Rights or the Constitution itself, it's actually a very good document as described by Frederick Douglass tonight in our Bridging the Gap series. What the problem is, is we have a nation full of oath breakers who swear an oath to defend something and don't defend it. They just stand there and go, what happened? As they watch all the rights disappear. Go back and say your oath again. And it tells you right there what you're supposed to be doing at this point. But instead, we're allowing government officials uh, to take positions of power where they show no respect for the Constitution whatsoever, and particularly not for the rights of minorities when it comes to the U.S. Constitution. If these rights applied and were defended in the way they were intended to, many of our problems would be gone, all, all except that 13th Amendment exception clause. But if we're truly in a lawless land, then we need to be having a different conversation. For the time being, I'm trying to hope that we can use these tools in order to make a change before we consider something like an all-out revolution where we would have no chance in hell. Anyway, man, we're getting a little bit over, and you know, you and I like to talk, especially me. <laughs> so <laughs> what I want to do is allow another brother who's a griot to do some talking. And uh, it's a poet, a uh, friend of mine by the name of Wayne Breeze Watson. And the yeah, poem Wayne that I'm play now is called Dead Man Walking. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about him, and it's after we listen. Be right back. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Don't give me hell when I've been living hell. What? Mr. Breeze, will you Stand to your feet, sir. You've just been found guilty by a jury of your peers. We sentence you to death by electrocution. Is there anything that you would like to say? 
Please save your son. Cut strike 12. Lights go out. 
fucking little. You're still smiling. on the wall. That's a classic piece. Breeze is a brother of mine and one of the founding members of Prismatic Dreams. Yusuf? Man, that song was tough, Max. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Breeze, man. That was tough right there, man. That feels (laughs) like that should be some theme music, you know, like Jack of Speed. Every hero got to have theme music, right? Yes, yes. Man, that song was tough. You know, Glenn Ford, what he was saying about forgiveness, that's where Breeze is coming from. And, you know, poets had this tendency to try to put ourselves in other people's shoes. I think he did an excellent job uh, with expressing his feelings as an innocent person about to be and then eventually sent to the death penalty and and killed for $308 million. So, you know, now that we got some poetry in our spirit and we have heard Glenn Ford, a piece of the story, uh, what we're going to do is go into a little bit more details about the Eighth Amendment. So that means I'm going to go ahead and pass the mic to you, Yusuf, and see what you pulled together for this week. And I'll add commentary after you finish. You know I always like digging as deep as we can go. What I came up with was I realized that uh, Britain influenced America's use of the death penalty more than any other country. When European settlers came to the quote-unquote new world, they brought the practice of capital punishment with them. The first recorded execution in the new colonies was that of Captain George Kendall in the Jamestown Colony of Virginia in 1608. Kendall was executed for being a spy for Spain. In 1612, Virginia Governor Sir Thomas Dale enacted divine moral and martial laws, which provided the death penalty for even minor offenses such as stealing grapes, killing chickens, and trading with Indians. Laws regarding the death penalty varied from colony to colony. The Massachusetts Bay Colony held its first execution in 1630, even though the capital laws of New England did not go into effect until years later. The New York Colony instituted the Duke's Law of 1665. Under these laws, offenses such as striking one's mother or father or denying the quote-unquote true God were punishable by death. In 1789, during the debate over the Bill of Rights in the first Congress, one argument was over the extent of the death penalty. Samuel Livermore of New, New Hampshire proposed that it is sometimes necessary to hang a man. Villains often deserve whipping and perhaps having their ears cut off. Are we in the future to be prevented from inflicting these punishments because they are cruel? If a more lenient mode of correcting vice and determining others from the commission of it, of it would be invented, it would be very prudent in the legislator to adopt it. But until we have some security that this will be done, we ought not to be restrained from making necessary laws by any declaration of its kind. So in 1878, 
the court ruled in Wilkerson versus Utah that death penalty by firing squad was permissible, but it agreed that old English practices of execution where prisoners were emboweled alive, beheaded, and quartered, publicly dissected and burned alive were unconstitutional. There, there's there's an article, a little clip that talks about the execution of Wallace Wilkerson, the precedent in the portent, where it, it tells you about the debacle that happened with that, of how bad it went. So in 1890, there's a case by the name of Henry Kemmler, K-E-M-M-L-E-R, which held that the first use of the electric chair was constitutional, but under the 14th Amendment. I'm going to read that again. They're basically saying that the 14th Amendment makes the electric chair constitutional. Punishments are cruel when they involve torture or lingering death, but the punishment of death is not cruel within the meaning of that word as used in the Constitution. This is what the court says in Kimmler. In 1972, the court changed direction in the case called Furman versus Georgia. There's also, there's also like a seven-plus-minute uh, video that we'll have up on the page that breaks down this case, Furman versus Georgia. But in this case, it's, very, it's a complicated ruling. It was a split decision decided that the death penalty application in this one specific case was unconstitutional because Furman, they say, was an armed burglar, and he tripped while fleeing the scene, causing his gun to discharge and kill the victim. So they believed that his punishment shouldn't have been the death penalty. However, the justices in a one-page overall opinion, which wasn't attributed to one justice, they didn't even say who wrote the opinion, with five concurring opinions and four dissenting opinions. So because of the ambiguity of the Furman case, this led to 35 states to pass their own death penalty statutes. In 1976, in a series of decisions called the Gregg cases, G-R-E-G-G, the court confirmed that capital punishment was legal in the United States, but under limited circumstances. It rejected automatic sentencing to death and said death sentences can't be characterized by arbitrariness and capriciousness. The ruling led to the use by states of aggregating and mitigating circumstances in determining capital punishments. In later years, the court excluded certain classes of people from capital punishment, including mentally, health, mentally handicapped and juveniles. I don't know why they say mentally handicapped, because we know several people have gone to the uh, received the death penalty because of being mentally handicapped, not because of mm-hmm. that they suffered from it. It also eliminated rape, just rape itself, not talking about a rape and murder, but eliminated rape from uh, capital punishment, and it also eliminated felony murder as a capital crime. In 2008, the court did rule on lethal injections, which it upheld as a legal form of capital punishment in a case called Bayes versus Rees, that's B-A-Z-E, and Rees is R-E-E-S. Again, the justices issued several opinions, none uh, gathering a majority vote. The controlling opinion said 
An isolated mishap in an execution would not violate the Eighth Amendment because that does not suggest cruelty and does not indicate that the procedure used presented a substantial risk of serious harm. But the court also inferred that a state might violate the Eighth, and Eighth Amendment ban on cruel and unusual punishment if it continually used a flawed method when alternative procedures were available that were less painful. So basically they're saying, okay, you got away with that one. We're not going to declare it uh, unconstitutional. Just don't do it anymore. Sort of like a slap on the wrist, wrist type of thing. To constitute cruel and unusual punishment, an execution method must present a substantial or objectionably intolerable risk of harm. A state's refusal to adopt proffered alternative procedures may violate the Eighth Amendment only where the alternative procedure is feasible, readily implemented, implemented and in fact significantly reduces substantial risk of severe pain. This is what Justice John Roberts just uh, ruled in the uh, Bayes versus Reeves case. Currently there are 32 states that have laws that allow for executions. Three more states have convicts eligible, prisoners I should say, convicts. Prisoners eligible for capital punishment under prior laws. Almost all states have lethal injection as their primary execution method. Well, between January 15th to March 5th of this year, five people were put to death. Two in Texas, one in Georgia, one in Tennessee, and one in Alabama. Other executions have been postponed because of the pandemic. So that prompted me to say, hey, let me go look and see what happened in history. During the Spanish flu from 1918 to 1920, capital punishment was not suspended. 236 people were hanged, electrocuted, or shot during those three years. Two of the executions were botched. No surprise there. One in Maryland and one in Delaware. When the drop used in the hangings provided insufficient, proved insufficient to break their necks. 55 years later, from 1957 to 1958, another health crisis of epidemic proportions caused by a different strain of the flu, which resulted in you know, many deaths. But again, executions went forward. Hanging, although hanging was on the way out, it was still used to kill six people during that time, and the gas chamber was used in 15 executions, and another 59 died in the electric chair Three of those executions were botched. Again, no surprises there. There were no executions during the 1968 Hong Kong flu pandemic. That year was the start of the unofficial moratorium on executions that led to the, ninth, the Supreme Court's 1972 uh, decision in the Furman versus Georgia. And finally, swine flu, another epidemic, arrived in the United States in 2009. There were 52 executions carried out in 11 states during that pandemic. All but one were done by lethal injection, two of which were botched. So there's also an article that's going to be posted entitled, Missouri Just Broke the Pandemic's Moratorium on Executions because they actually just put someone to death, a gentleman by the name of Walter Barton. He was put to death this past Tuesday in Missouri. So. Even under the current circumstances, 
the uh, state-sponsored uh, killings must go on, whether they botch them, whether they, no matter what happens, they're going to, it's basically like the show must go on. That's what I have for the history, Max. What you think of that? Thank you, brother. I always appreciate when you do the research so that other people can understand, uh, like, the origins of these things, where they come from and how we got to where we're at right now. So I appreciate yeah. you, man. Um, I would like Thank to you. add some other some statistics to it. You know, there is a racial aspect of this. It's been proven in the court over and over again that often uh, these death penalties are applied to black people far more than any other group. And as of 2015, for example, of the prisoners executed in Florida for interracial murders since 1976 in cases of a white defendant and a black victim, there have been 20. In cases of a black defendant and a white victim, there have been 271. In the 41 years since Florida reinstated the death penalty, a white person convicted of killing a black person had never been put to death. And that changed in 2017 when Mark James Estee, 53, convicted of gunning down men, one black, in Jacksonville three decades ago, was executed by lethal injection. As the 93rd execution in Florida's modern history, he is still the only white man who has ever been put to death for killing a black person in Florida. Just amazing. And how many years had that been, Max? Um, and that has been 41 years. Since 41 years. The death penalty. Yes. And uh, 90, he was the 93rd execution in 2017 and the first white person to be executed for the murder of a black person in Florida. Because the rest of them, you know, yeah, the rest of them, you know, they they get the benefit of the Casual Killing Act. The Casual Killing Act. And that's what we've been trying to present here today is these perspectives. This is an old argument. When I first took this task on, when you said it last week, you know, we got to do the Eighth Amendment. Oh, my God, because I knew the death penalty was going to be the Mariana Trench. It's an argument that's been going on since day one. And I find it difficult to fault a woman like Aubrey's mother, Maude Aubrey's mother, who wants justice for her son. I find it difficult to fault her. But at the same time, I find the reasoning presented by Mark Lamar Hill that the state considering its past, is incapable of executing someone fairly, if there is such a thing. So there's a no-man's zone that means that until we end slavery, we ain't got no business killing nobody. I'm in total agreement with that. Because the Eighth Amendment violations, the Sixth Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Thirteen, Fourteen, Fifteen, all of these things apply to the system of slavery. Because of the slavery, these constitutional uh, rights have, are being violated systemically. When you find something as corrupt as safe slavery, you can expect that you, any rights you may have are being violated. <laughs> and that's what we find in this system. Uh, yeah, that's not even, yeah, that's not even including, you know, all the other stuff that goes on. When you start talking about, you know, you have these experts, who are paid to do, you know, blood analysis or bite mark analysis or all kinds of analyses where they get paid by the positive result. You know, so yes. when you have that, 
again, money determining what's justice. So until all of that is fixed, you you can't have it. Right, right. And don't forget that the 95% plea bargains by a 95% uh, pool of white prosecutors happen to a majority. Right. The racism is embedded in the system simply by sheer numbers. It is clear and obvious. And to think, you have, if you have a justice system that is dominated by 95% white people, uh, with 79% of them being white men, and that no racism is happening, makes you seem very naive. At the least, at the least. But we've been trying to let people tell stories or have the artists tell stories, so we're going to keep doing that, man. And the next thing I want to get into is uh, Brother Archie Williams. Archie Williams spent 37 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. And in 2019, he took the stage at America's Got Talent. He got a standing ovation. Much of his story is told in this clip. From America got talent, and we want to share it with you. I know when I first heard it, and when you said when he first heard it, we both were broken down by this story. But these are the yeah, people whose lives are being wasted, and and who are being killed in the senseless quest for justice through a group that doesn't know what justice is. Anyway, here we are with wrongly incarcerated singer Archie Williams delivers unforgettable song. America's Got Talent 2020. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Welcome. Thank you. Let's start with your name, please, sir. My name is Archie Williams. Then where are you from, Archie? I'm from Louisiana. Louisiana. Right, let's get to know you first of all, actually. Okay. I uh, I was just incarcerated for 37 years for somebody else's crime. Ooh. DNA freed me. Uh, oh, wow. Oh, my God. On the morning of December the 9th of 1982, a 30-year-old white woman was raped and stabbed in her home. I was arrested on January the 4th. I couldn't believe it was really happening. I knew I was innocent, I didn't commit a crime. But being a poor black kid, I didn't have the economic ability to fight the state of Louisiana. At the trial, none of the fingerprints at the scene matched mine. Three people testified that I was at home, but they wanted somebody to pay. I was sentenced to life in 80 years without the possibility of parole or probation. I was sent to Angola State Penitentiary. It was classified as the bloodiest prison in the United States. You had a choice to either be strong or weak, you know, because you will be tried and tested. Days turned into weeks, into months, into years, and into decades. It's like a nightmare, you know. 37 years. How did you get through? Freedom is of the mind. Yeah. I went to prison, but I never let my mind go to prison. When, you know, you're faced with dog times, what I would do is I would pray and sing. 
did a talk, I got peace. You know, and when the Anderson Project took my case, I just kept hope that they will prevail. This new technology got me back in court. They was ordered to, you know, run the fingerprints in the database. Within hours, they matched the prints to uh, a serial rapist. After 37 years, I was released on March the 21st, 2019. How does it feel right now to be out, to be vindicated? Man, it's a feeling I'm still trying to grab. I'm still trying to digest the freedom that I have right now. I watched America Got Talent in prison, and I would visualize myself being there. I always desired to be on a stage like this. And now I'm here. Thank God. I know it's my chance of a lifetime. Wow, Archie. Well, I'm so sorry you had to go through what you went through, but thank God uh, the right thing happened and you're out. Thank you. So what are you going to be doing today, Archie? I'm a thing. Okay. Take a deep breath. We're all with you, Archie. I can't lie. No more of your darkness.
exactly. just heard Archie exactly. Williams uh, exactly. on America's Got Talent. Yeah. I'm going down on me. Oh, man. Yusuf? Yeah, man. That, that song is really tough. I mean, Elton John probably didn't know what he was doing when he wrote that song, man. It, sort of like what uh, Simon alluded to there. It just gives the song whole new, a whole new meaning. Yeah. You know, that when we look years. at, you know, when we look at it uh, parabolically, you know, with the sun setting is, is an example of death, the parable of death. And, I mean, yeah, the sun didn't go down on Archie, man. I'm I'm glad he made it out of there. And I mean, just thinking, 37 years. It's just not any 37 years. We're talking 37 years in Angola. Right. Yeah, 37 yeah, years in Angola. You know, and I remember when I was watching the video clip of this, and they showed like a little small segment of him, you know, in prison gear, and you know, had the little prison band playing, and you know, I'm just thinking of all the times that he probably told people, you know, that, you know, he's going to be a singer or whatever, you know, and of course guys are probably clowning him, making all kinds of jokes about it and how he said how he used to watch the show in prison, you know, things of that nature. And here he is, you know, it's it's just really, yeah, man, that song cuts, it, it cuts through the heart like a knife, man. You know, if that doesn't pull on your emotional project. strings. Yeah, anyone that doesn't pull on their emotional strings, man, and, you know, they're, they're soulless. Gotta be. I give a lot of credit to the Innocence Project, uh, working across the nation. I consider them our modern-day underground railroad, literally getting bodies, innocent bodies from the system of slavery out as many as they can. And I know, like Frederick Douglass said last week, it's like trying to eat the ocean with a teacup or teaspoon, but they are saving lives, like literally. I mean, in order to get justice, which one of these men's lives was worth it to you? Do you know? <laughs> would it have been Glenn? Uh, you know, would it have been the character in Breeze's poem? Uh, and the next one that we got coming up, more poetry, um, the story of George Stinius Jr., uh, he was the youngest person to ever be executed in the United States, only 14 years old, and was tried and executed in a matter of freaking minutes, on no evidence. And uh, a group put the, or a brother put together a, a heck of a presentation on his story. And uh, I guess in a moment or two we'll, we're going to go ahead and play that. But uh, I just want to check first. Is there anything else we needed to cover in this part, Yusuf, before we uh, go to George Stinney's? No, we can go on. Yeah, we can go on. All right. There was one thing I did want to mention um, in regards to Archie Williams. I was talking to uh, my, my brother Alonzo in Angola prison today, and he said, I know Archie Williams personally, man. As a matter of fact, I want to set up an interview. He's going to set up two interviews, one with us exclusively uh, to talk with Archie Williams uh, about his story, and also to help bring light to the, what they're fighting there in Angola with the 10 and 2. As I said, that's a big issue in Louisiana. So many people were convicted under that 10 and 2 rule where you didn't need a full jury in order to convict somebody of murder and put them on death row. You could do it with just 10. 
And until 2018, that law was in existence, straight-up Jim Crow laws. And they're fighting for the freedom of the people who were convicted under those laws, at least for a retrial at the very least. All right, well, as I said, uh, we're keeping it going with people telling their own stories or the artists telling the stories for them. And in this one, we have uh, George Junius Jr. poem. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Ill Poet Society. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. On March 23, 1944, in Alkaloo, South Carolina, these two white girls was riding bikes by the tracks that separate the whites and blacks. They was looking for Maypop flowers, but within hours they came up missing. Wishing that I had never told the sheriff that I had seen them, the white girls' bodies turned up the next day in a ditch not too far from where I stay. I was even part of the search to find them, but I found myself being blamed for the murder of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. I began to panic as the white folks' rage raced at a pace too swift for me to even contemplate getting someplace safe. And before I could even count to five, I heard somebody say the nigger boy was the last one to see him alive. I wanted to run, but my feet couldn't move. So I couldn't run, and there was no point at this point because I was quickly surrounded by a white mob with guns. I resigned myself to the fact that I was going to be lynched that very instant, but in that same instant, the sheriff grabbed me and took me to jail. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I'm being arrested for the killing of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. The mob followed us all the way to the jail. Meanwhile, I'm crying for my life and wanted to see my mother, because I wasn't guilty of nothing but being in the wrong place at the wrong time while being the wrong color. Small for my age, I was slightly built. But the interrogation proceedings began with a bunch of questions centered around the presumption of my guilt. You see, the good old boy reasoning wouldn't allow them to realize that at 5'1", 95 pounds, there was no way I could wrestle both girls to the ground, somehow manage to crush the skull of one while simultaneously subduing the other, and transporting both bodies away from the scene in broad daylight without being seen. But the resolve of the sheriff could not be understated because he decided he was leaving that room with a confession even if he had to fabricate it. He offered me ice cream and said that I could go home and he'd forget it if I just admit that I did it. Now after hours of questioning with fear, exhaustion, and the naivete of my age combining to compromise my judgment, I admitted being the perpetrator of the incident and in that very instant relinquished my innocence. The sheriff left the room and I heard him say he just confessed that he was after sex. The little nigger boy just put the noose around his own neck. Best bet we get him to Charleston and out of sight. The lynch mob won't let the nigger survive the night. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I'm being charged with the killing of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. The next morning, I was sitting in my cell, and I heard an officer tell another that my father had lost his job, and he and my family had left town the previous night in fear of their lives. I hadn't signed anything, and no one talked to me about an attorney, but the jury selection began at 10, ended around 12 for the trial itself to start at 2.30. I couldn't do no bargaining, and I wasn't in a position to, and that's probably how my defense attorney ended up being the county tax commissioner. Now, blacks were not allowed in the courtroom, so you know there were none on the jury. Quick, fast, and in a hurry with no witnesses, transcripts, written confession, or evidence. After 10 minutes, I was sentenced to death with no hesitance. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I have just been convicted of the double homicide of Betty June Vinegar and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. By the time June 16th came, I resigned myself to the fact that I was going to die and convinced myself that I was not going to give them white folks the satisfaction of seeing me cry. Of this crime, I'm innocent. I done said it from the beginning, and my contention is not diminished one bit by your bigoted justice system or a death sentence from an all-white jury that deliberated my innocence for a whole of ten minutes. I grabbed my Bible, and the guards walked me down the hall. 
A door at the end of the hall is all I saw. I walked in the room and handed the attendant my Bible and took a seat. But I was so small the straps kept falling off and sliding down around my feet. The attendant looked at me and froze. I was too short to reach the face mask and electrodes. He took a second look and sat me on top of a stack of books. He stretched the electrodes to the limit to reach my head and covered my face with the mask is what he did. All of which was still too big. Then he pulled the switch. My body convulsed and twitched so much that my head came from under the bonnet, exposing my smoking nasal cavity and sizzling vomit. After four minutes, he turned off the power and my head lay tilted, with a sunken face, singed hair, and an eye missing. I'm sharing this with you so I'm not forgotten and the justice system is held accountable and in shame. Even though I may be long gone, don't give up trying to clear my name. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I was executed for the double homicide of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. And to this day, at 14, the youngest ever to be executed in the United States. us or just tuning in, we were listening to an excerpt from episode 11, The State of the Eighth Amendment. We packed a lot into that episode, and I wanted to play as much of it as possible. Here are some of the things you heard during that clip. started out with Glenn Ford, who spent nearly 30 years on death row in Louisiana for a murder he certainly did not commit. Due to cancer that went untreated while in prison, Glenn died in 2005. Less than 16 months after his conviction and death sentence was vacated, he was released. He was 65. The state of Louisiana refused to compensate him. And you heard the clip of the prosecutor uh, trying to say how sorry he was and blah, 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 blah. And we know, as I stated in the clip, it was just disingenuous to me. And that was followed up by... Dead Man Walking, the song slash poem by our brother Wayne Breeze Watson from the album The Writing is on the Wall. You also heard Max and I discuss the Eighth Amendment death penalty, the cruel and unusual punishment clause. We laid out the facts, the numbers, the short history, and the racial aspects. Then we came down to uh, Archie Williams' performance on America's Got Talent. And just this story, you know, 37 years of incarceration at Angola Prison, which is the most deadliest and bloodiest prison in the United States. And 
to, to hear him talk and hear him in such good spirits, you know, it just, it, it definitely touched me, even hearing it again after the song several times, and it still, you know, gets to me. As well as the poem telling the story of George Junius Stenny Jr., of his execution, that was written by Killer Noise of Ill Poet Society, Volume 2. George Stenius Jr., George Junius Stenny Jr. was electrocuted by the state of South Carolina in 1944, and at 14 years old, he was the youngest person to be executed in America, and he was exonerated in 2014, 70 years later, but again, he's gone. There's nothing we can do about it. So there was so much more to that episode. I encourage you to go back to listen to it in its entirety. That was episode 11, which aired on May 24, 2020, the State of the Eighth Amendment. And after showing beyond a reasonable doubt that the Sixth Amendment is a myth that does not exist in reality, we just reviewed the primary tool used by prosecutors forcing minorities and the poor to take plea deals at 95% uh, rate. The Eighth Amendment, another constitutional protection and right that has become so perverted it no longer has any meaning. So we just dealt with the Eighth Amendment, and we want to turn to episode 12 where we dealt with the second aspect of the Eighth Amendment, which deals with excessive bail. And in fact, it states excessive bail should not be required, nor excessive fines imposed. So if we prove the Sixth Amendment is a myth, and we did, then we now show the Eighth Amendment as blood money. So let's get to it. Uh, we'll start out with the clip of the Ferguson report that was delivered by acting attorney general at the time, Eric Holder, and a clip from Real News entitled Inside America's For-Profit Bail System with a discussion from Max and I. Abolition. So we're here to Abolition. talk Abolition. about the Eighth Abolition. Amendment today, Abolition. and particularly the aspect of the Eighth Amendment where you're supposed to be protected from excessive fines and fees and bail. So what we're going to do tonight, one of the most reliable sources you could probably ever imagine to tell you exactly what's going down. And we're not talking about secondhand information. We're talking about the person who is literally in charge of how this rolls out. And at the time of this conversation, it was Eric Holt who went to Ferguson and read in Ferguson the Ferguson Report, which went over so many people's heads. So we took the time to pull out uh, the parts where he really goes into extreme detail about what it is we're dealing with and who's doing what, and we're going to listen to that together. I've listened to hours of different interviews and videos and read articles left and right, and I could not find any way to bring this together better than having a sitting attorney general tell you exactly what kind of crimes are being committed and to who. So, Yusuf, we're going to start off by listening to Eric Holt. Hey, let's do Abolition. it. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Now, as detailed in what I will call our searing report, and it is searing, also released by the Justice Department today, this investigation found a community that was deeply polarized a community where deep distrust and hostility often characterized interactions between police and area residents, a community where local authorities consistently approached law enforcement not as a means for protecting public safety, but as a way to generate revenue, 
a community where both policing and municipal court practices were found to be disproportionately harmful to African-American residents, a community where this harm frequently appears to stem at least in part from racial bias, both implicit and explicit, and a community where all of these conditions, unlawful practices, and constitutional violations have not only severely undermined the public trust, eroded police legitimacy, and made local residents less safe, but created an intensely charged atmosphere where people feel under assault and under siege by those who are charged to serve and to protect them. Now, of course, violence is never, is never justified. But seen in this context, amid a, a highly toxic environment, defined by mistrust and resentment, stoked by years of bad feelings, and spurred by illegal and misguided practices, it's not difficult to imagine how a single tragic incident set off the city of Ferguson like a powder keg. In a sense, members of the community may not have been responding only to a single isolated confrontation, but also to a pervasive, corrosive, and deeply unfortunate lack of trust attributable to numerous constitutional violations by their law enforcement officials, including First Amendment abuses, unreasonable searches and seizures, and excessive and dangerous use of force, exacerbated by severely disproportionate use of these tactics against African Americans and driven by overriding pressure from the city to use law enforcement not as a, a public service, but as a tool for raising revenue. Now, according to, according to our investigation, this emphasis on, on revenue generation through policing has fostered unconstitutional practices or practices that contribute to constitutional violations at nearly every level of Ferguson's law enforcement system. Ferguson police officers issued nearly 50% more citations in the last year than they did in 2010, an increase that has not been driven or even accompanied by a rise in crime. As a result of this excessive reliance on ticketing, today the city generates a significant amount of revenue from the enforcement of code provisions. Along with taxes and other revenue streams in 2010, the city collected over $1.3 million in fines and fees collected by the court. For fiscal year 2015, Ferguson's city budget anticipates the revenues to exceed $3 million, more than double the total from just five years prior. Our review of the evidence and our conversations with police officers have shown that significant pressure is brought to bear on law enforcement personnel to deliver on these revenue increases. Once the system is primed for maximizing revenue, starting with fines and fine enforcement, the city relies on the police force to serve essentially as a, as a collection agency for the municipal court rather than as a law enforcement entity focused primarily on maintaining and promoting public safety. And a, and a wide variety of tactics, including disciplinary measures, are used to ensure certain levels of ticketing by individual officers regardless of public safety needs. As a result, it has become commonplace in Ferguson for officers to charge multiple violations for the same conduct. Three or four charges for a single stop is considered fairly routine. Some officers even compete to see who can issue the largest number of citations during a single stop, a total that in at least one instance rose as high as 14. 
and we have observed that even minor code violations can sometimes result in, in multiple arrests, jail time, and payments that exceed the cost of the original ticket many times over. Now, for example, in 2007, one woman received two parking tickets that together totaled $152. To date, she has paid $550 in fines and fees to the city of Ferguson. She has been arrested twice for having unpaid tickets, and she has spent six days in jail. Yet today, she still inexplicably owes Ferguson $541. And her story is only one of dozens of similar accounts that our investigation uncovered. Now, over time, it's clear that this, this culture of enforcement actions being disconnected from the, the public safety needs of the community, and often to the detriment of community residents, has given rise to a disturbing and unconstitutional pattern or practice. Our investigation showed that Ferguson police officers routinely violate the Fourth Amendment in stopping people without reasonable suspicion, arresting them without probable cause, and using unreasonable force against them. According to the police department's own records, their own records, its officers frequently infringe on residents' First Amendment rights. They interfere with the, with the right to record police activities, and they make enforcement decisions based on the way individuals express themselves. Now, many of these constitutional violations have become routine. Now, for instance, even though it's illegal for police officers to detain a person, even briefly, without a reasonable suspicion, it's become common practice for officers in Ferguson to, to stop pedestrians and to request identification for no reason at all. And even in cases where police encounters start off as constitutionally defensible, we found that they frequently and rapidly escalate and end up blatantly and unnecessarily crossing the line. During the summer of 2012, one Ferguson police officer detained a 32-year-old African-American man who had just finished playing basketball at a park. The officer approached the man while he was sitting in his car and he was resting. The car's windows appeared to be more heavily tinted than Ferguson's code allowed, so the officer did have legitimate grounds to question him. But with no apparent justification, the officer proceeded to accuse the man of being a pedophile. He prohibited the man from using his cell phone and ordered him to get out of his car for a pat-down search, even though he had no reason to suspect that the man was armed. And when the man objected, citing his constitutional rights, the police officer drew his service weapon, pointed it at the man's head, and arrested him on eight different counts. Now, this arrest caused the man to lose his job. Unfortunately, this event appears to have been anything but an isolated incident. Our investigation showed that members of Ferguson's police force frequently escalate rather than diffuse tensions with the residents that they encounter. And such actions are sometimes accompanied by, by First Amendment violations, including arresting people for, for talking back to officers, for recording their public activities, or engaging in other conduct that is constitutionally protected. This behavior not only exacerbates tensions in its own right, it has the effect of stifling community confidence that is absolutely vital for effective policing. And this, in turn, deepens the widespread distrust provoked by the department's other unconstitutional exercises of police power, none of which is more harmful than its pattern of excessive force.
Now, among the incidents of excessive force discovered by our comprehensive review, some resulted from stops or arrests that had no legal basis to begin with. Others were punitive or retaliatory in nature. The police department's routine use of tasers was found to be not really unconstitutional, but abusive and dangerous. Records showed a really disturbing history of using unnecessary force against people with mental illness. And our findings indicated that the overwhelming majority of force, almost 90%, is directed against African Americans. Now, this deeply alarming statistic points to one of the most pernicious aspects of the conduct that our investigation uncovered, that these policing practices disproportionately harm African American residents. In fact, our review of the evidence found no, no alternative explanation for the disproportionate impact on African American residents other than implicit and explicit racial bias. No other basis. Between October 2012 and October 2014, despite making up only 67% of the population, African Americans accounted for a little over 85% of all traffic stops by the Ferguson Police Department. African Americans were twice as likely as white residents to be searched during a routine traffic stop, even though they were 26% less likely to carry contraband. Between October 2012 and July 2014, 35 black individuals, 35 black individuals and zero white individuals received five or more citations at the same time. During the same period, African Americans accounted for fully 85% of the total charges brought by the Ferguson Police Department. African Americans made up over 90% of those charged with a, a highly discretionary offense described as, and I quote, manner of walking along roadway, unquote. Manner of walking along roadway. And use of dogs by Ferguson Police appears to have been exclusively reserved for African-Americans. In every case in which Ferguson police records recorded the race of a person bit by a police dog, that person was African-American. The evidence of racial bias comes not only from statistics, but also from remarks made by police, city, and court officials. A, a thorough examination of the records, including a large volume of work emails, shows a number of public servants expressing racist comments or gender discrimination, demonstrating grotesque views and images of African Americans in which they were seen as the other, called transient by public officials and characterized as lacking personal responsibility. Now, I want to emphasize that all of these examples, statistics, and conclusions are drawn directly from the exhaustive findings report that the Department of Justice has now released. Abolition. 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 All right, you just heard it. That was Eric Holder, who was at the time the acting attorney general of the United States, physically went into Ferguson after an exhaustive, exhaustive investigation, and these were his findings. I couldn't have said it any clearer myself. He covered just about every base you can imagine. He hit it on the head. I mean, step-by-step breakdown. I don't think anyone is shocked or surprised by the information that he put out, but you're still looking at the audacity of it and how 
Ferguson has about 21,000 residents. So, I mean, that's that's a neighborhood in New York City, you know. That's Queensbridge Projects right there, that population. So we can imagine the numbers as we go around the country and look city by city by city by city, and we're going to hear the same story over and over and over and over again, the same story. The same story, the same racial disparity, the same constitutional violations over and over and over and over again. And this is the attorney general. He's the top cop, top cop in the country. And he's saying this is what this police department is doing. And they know it's happening everywhere. Yeah, man. Uh, there was, uh, I took quite a bit of notes over the past couple of days and then again while listening today. And there was so much that stood out for me. It's like smacks in the face. I mean, it should wake you right up. He must have felt some kind of way as being not only the attorney general but a black man to be able to stand right. up and say, this is what's happening to you people right here in Ferguson, Missouri. And I am going to say it cut and dry and clear as I can, and nothing happened. I mean, there were some attempts to try to make Ferguson different, but I doubt if anything happened. From what I understand, there hasn't been much in the way of change. They went right back to business as usual. And as you pointed out, it, the only reason they got this information is because, like in Ohio and Cleveland, they had to investigate. The Attorney General's Office, the Department of Justice, had to investigate these violations that were occurring, particularly after people got fed up and started raising hell about it. And what they found in each case was the same thing. And that leads me to believe that it doesn't matter where you go. You can go to New York, you find the same thing even worse. Go to L.A., you find the same thing right. even worse. In right. any city across America, you'll find that this is driving their revenue streams, using uh, human bodies, economic development resources. He said that the police department was being used to generate revenue and not for any real policing. He said that they turned the police department, not just a policeman, the police right. department, into a collection agency for the right. city. And the drive at home, he pointed out how they went for $1.5 million, and then they sent a couple of emails to the police department saying, hey, can you make, do more tickets? And in uh, a year, they were up to $3 million because that's exactly what they did, just decided to put more tickets on. He was saying about in cases where they were competing to get the most tickets, to random people that they were stopping. And those random people right. that were stopping were primarily black people every time. He was going to give somebody 14 tickets. And that's how many tickets he said, at least one case in their competitions, one guy got 14 tickets for a random stop. How much money are you talking about? And he didn't say it was just the police department. He said it was at every level of this city's infrastructure. The courts right. were involved, the police were involved, the city council was involved, the mayor's involved. Everybody was involved in this use of the Eighth Amendment's violation in order to generate millions. He even said that the police had quotas, that they were being pressured to arrest as many people as possible, a minimum of this many, in order for them to meet those quotas, and that there would be punishment, basically, if they didn't meet. Uh, you know, in Ferguson, they found out, that there are 33,000 warrants in that city, 33,000. But there's only 21,000 mm -hmm. people. How the hell right. you got 33,000 warrants? You only got 21,000 people. 
And it shows the level of financial extortion and exploitation happening under the guise of a justice department in cities all across America. The example he used of the one woman, she had fines of $140. By the time it was all done, she was over $1,000 in debt, had already spent six days in jail, and still owed $500. And look how look how a lot of it starts, where the method of the way they were walking down the street, you know, and that we translate right. that as walking while black, you know, because they said that, you know, blacks are two times more likely to be, you know, uh, searched and searched than whites, and then it turns out that, the blacks will be twenty times twenty percent less likely to actually be carrying contraband. So when you, when you look at the numbers, they're still doing it anyway because they know that there's no real pushback. Well, they're probably going to think differently. Hopefully now after what's going on this week, but for the most part, they know that there's there's not going to be any pushback from those who matter. You know, the mayor is not going to push back on them. The, the chief of police or the police commissioner is not going to push back on them. The city council is not going to push back on them. The courts are not going to push back on them. Nothing's going to come from the Department of Justice, you know. So it's not like people are being, you know, people in power are being arrested or fined for, for doing these constitutional violations. So there's going to be no real change behind it. I mean, even mentioned that in all the cases where police dogs were sent out and the, the dog actually bit someone. 100% of the Every cases case. were blacks. 100%. Every case. Yep. 100%. 100%. And in the cases yeah. where people were paying five or more tickets, that was also, uh, what, was it, what do you say, 35 black people and no white people. <laughs> right. Zero white right. people. 35 black, all, all of them, every one of them. It's race-based class-based extortion, violation of the Eighth Amendment, which protects you from these uh, excessive bails, fines, and fees. And it's part of a huge industry that rakes in many, many tens of billions of dollars collectively using your bodies and your resources, the people who have the least, to fund everything that they're doing. I'm talking about the fines and fees industrial complex, the traffic ticket industrial complex, the warrant mm-hmm. industrial complex, the bail industrial complex, the asset seizure industrial complex, the police auction industrial complex, the no-knock warrant industrial complex, the probation industrial complex, the court cost industrial complex, the child support industrial complex, the drug war, the police quotas. The uh, prison commissary exploitation, where you have to buy what they provide, and it's excessively high price. The prison banking industry, like JPay, uh, where you right. ignore the choice but to be exploited by them. Even the pay-to-stay jails, where you literally pay a fee to stay in a better jail. And in other jails, right. where they charge you whether you want to be charged or not. If, you, if they charge you with a crime and put you in that jail, it's X amount of dollars every day for you being in there, whether you are guilty or not. This is all extortion, and it's a complete violation of the Eighth Amendment. You want to add anything Absolutely. else to that? Yeah, because, I mean, even when we talk about uh, 
GPS monitoring. I mean, the numbers are astronomical in the amount of money they're making in that industry for, you know, here a person, okay, you, you, you come up with ways of saying, okay, we're going to have alternatives to incarceration, but what it does is increases the amount of fees. So now the person has to pay for the bracelet, pay for the monitoring. There's a monthly service fee. Then on top of all of that, he has his court fees. And, you know, there's a difference between, so when you, when you have a, a fine, that's a criminal penalty imposed after a conviction. So say, for instance, if it's a ticket or if it's a, a crime where a person is going to be going to jail, there's a fine attached to that through, you know, statutes to say a person, you know, spends 60 days in jails and, and pays, you know, $1,500, you know, so that's a court-imposed fine. But then they also criminal fees, and the fees are what they really like. That's what they use to raise the revenue. And when we're talking about the fees, there are all kinds of fees. You know, there are court cost fees. There are, uh, they call it a court cost clearing trust fund fee. There's the fine and forfeiture fee. There's the crime stoppers program fee, the prosecutor fee, the crime compensation fee, uh, victims of victims compensation fee. There's law enforcement agency fees. There are all kinds of fees that they just make up because none of it is regulated. This is something that, you know, the courts make up themselves. And they say, okay, well, we're just going to do all of this, and this is how we're going to drive up all these costs. So you have people paying fees that aren't even statutorily written. So it's not like you're – you know, the people that we vote into office, they go down to the state assembly in whatever state you're in. They go down there and they, when they come up with the criminal laws that attaches uh, fines to them, that's supposed to establish, okay, if a person is convicted of this, then this is what they pay. But then the courts turn around and say, well, we're going to do a money grab and we're going to impose fines, although it has nothing in the statute saying this. We're going to put these fines on people. And then when they can't pay them, we're gonna send we're gonna send our police collection agency after them and kick their doors down and kill anybody that gets in our way. And we're gonna take their homes, we're gonna take their cars, we're gonna take anything we get our hands on, we're gonna garnish their wages, we're gonna take their tax returns, we're gonna do anything we can to collect these fees, which don't even come through the statutes. And, and what's the sort of Democles? What is the or else at the end of that line? If you don't pay this bill, the or else. The or else is what it's always been, prison. They will put you right. in prison. It's simple as that. And in prison, you will still generate a revenue source for them, whether you're working or not, uh, whatever. It don't matter. If they get possession of your body, you're worth X amount of dollars a year just for being in a bed. And that is the sort of Damocles is at the end of all these sentences that we will put and, you and in jail or prison by force. But what's even more peculiar about that is that the Supreme Court has addressed this in two cases that go back to the 70s. One is Williams versus Illinois, and the other one is Tate versus Short. That's from 71. And 
I just want to give you a, a little a little story on this one, the Williams versus Illinois. So he was sentenced for a petty theft. He was given a year imprisonment and a five hundred dollar fine plus five dollars in court costs. But what happened, he was also he was also put in a situation where once he finished his sentence, if the fine hadn't been paid, then he would also have to work off paying that fine an additional uh however many days it would take him to pay it off at a rate of five dollars a day. So after doing his one year they were trying to make him do an additional 100 days to pay off the $500 fine. And, you know, the case eventually went all the way to the, to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court where they overturned it because he was, he was poor. He didn't have the money to pay for it. And the court said that under the Equal Protection Clause, a person can't be uh, sentenced to a period of in- imprisonment beyond the statutory maximum solely by reason of their indigency. And that's a similar case as the Tate versus Short one. So when someone goes into the court and says, I can't afford to pay that, the court is supposed to have a hearing. You know, we want everyone that's listening to this to realize that, that you have to raise this argument when you're in court to say, I am indigent, I can't afford to pay that. And you are entitled to a hearing. They're supposed to give you a hearing to determine if you are really indigenous and can't afford to pay. And it's not just merely the fact that, oh, you have a job, you can pay. That's not the determination of it, that there's a a clear uh, process in determining who can pay and how much can they pay. And the courts have all kinds of other alternatives, but a lot of times they just bypass all of it because they're into getting that money. And they want to use whatever force they can to get that money out of you, and that's why they do the things the way that they do them, Max. Well, I, I name a number of industries that all circle around a violation of the Eighth Amendment. And I did want Absolutely. to go over a couple of those briefly, but I also want to play a clip that I got from the Real News Network, which I've been on a couple of times with uh, Eddie Collins. On this clip, they have an actual commander of a drug task force who comes on and spills the beans about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Again, there's some people who are firsthand, have firsthand perspectives. This is the drug task commander. So before I go a little bit more into detail of the different areas, different industries, all revolving around Eighth Amendment violations, I want people to get a better understanding of what we're dealing with in addition to everything that Eric Holder said. So, I'll, sorry, would you, Yusuf, I'll play that real quick? Absolutely. All right, here you go. This is Inside America's Cash Hungry Plain Clothes Police Units from the Real News Network, and it's about Neil Franklin. As you know on the show, we always try to dig deeper into every story we report. We attempt to unearth previously unreported facts and speak to people who are willing to reveal the truth about American policing. And today is no exception because we have an in-depth interview from a person who actually used to run one of these units. And what he told us is revelatory. His name is Neil Franklin, and he's a former state police commander who ran a plainclothes drug interdiction unit 
for years. In 2018, Franklin agreed to sit down with my reporting partner, Stephen Janis, to discuss what drives these ad hoc units and how things like money actually steer their investigations. And for the first time today, we are airing what he told us. To discuss the interview, I'm joined by Stephen to give us an overview of what he said and what it means. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, before we play the interview, Neil, who has been a guest before on our show, has had an interesting career. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, uh, along with being the head of a, a narcotics unit for the state police, he was also a commander in the Baltimore City Police Department, and he headed up their training division. So he's had a broad swath of experience in law enforcement. Stephen, now before we play the key clips, what was the topic of the interview and why were we speaking to him and what were you trying to learn? Well, at that point, we were investigating a Worcester County drug unit in Worcester County, which is on lower, Maryland's Lower Eastern Shore, who had um, been harassing Kelvin Sewell, a police officer in Pocomoke City, who was trying to institute community policing. They kept coming into town unannounced and raiding people's homes and stirring up problems for Kelvin Sewell and the black community. So we had been looking into them and wanted to learn more about how these units operated. And we found out a lot of interesting things from him. Drug task forces, the way they operate, it's interesting. They're interesting entities because they're not governed by one jurisdiction. They're not governed by a mayor's office. They're not governed by the governor. They're not governed by you know, a, a, a county executive, they're this willy-nilly group of folks who have come together <laughs> to do whatever they want to do and tie it to drug enforcement. It's a lot of money. You see a lot of cash. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of cars, motorcycles, homes, boats, you name it. And there's no direct accountability over top of that. And, you know, a lot of times we were deciding upon what car to go after or what target to go after, what person to go after. We were making that decision upon the value of their assets. We do financial workups on people, and that's how we would target a lot of these folks. They, do, they, do they own their property? Yeah, we look at liens. Do they own their cars? We look at liens, motorcycles, boats, whatever else they had. And then we'd start to do the workup. And many times you'd hear some of the undercovers saying, um, that's going to be my next undercover car. Stephen, what is your reaction to Neil's assertion drug units would run financial workups to determine who to investigate? What does that tell us about the other ways we've discussed policing on past shows? Well, I think what it says to me is that um, the, the need and search for profit and the profit incentive completely warps policing to its core. And I think I, even when Neil told me this, I was stunned by how naked it was, how, how they didn't even make any excuses or pretense as, in terms of why they were investigating. And also, I think, for once and for all, completely undermined any of the impetus for the war on drugs. The war on drugs is nothing but an industry based on exploiting communities and extracting wealth from communities that can least afford it. Well, you heard it right there. Uh, that was the Real News Network, and you heard Neil uh, Franklin, who was a former uh, commander, one of these drug task forces. And we're talking about the drug task force like the one they had in Baltimore, where all of them were arrested and have been charged mm -hmm. with racketeering and murder and drug selling. Uh, this is what was happening with these, the, the drug task force. And apparently this happens all over the country, and he broke it down for us just now. You see? 
yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm sitting here listening to him talking about you know, looking at someone's car and say, yeah, that's going to be my next undercover car right there. <laughs> you know, like these guys yeah. are window shopping. Yep, window shopping for what it is they want. And then they put they don't want an auction and they keep the money. The uh, auction, police auction is a huge industry generating millions and millions of dollars every year, particularly through asset seizure, as he just explained, using the drug war as a cover. As a matter of fact, he said they're ungoverned. Yes. That these are literally right. just a bunch of people coming together to do whatever they want with no accountability under the cover of drug war. And he was the man there doing it with them, telling you this is what they were doing. He had even pointed out that they based their arrest not on what kind of crime somebody has committed, but on the value mm-hmm. of their assets. On the right. value of their assets, that's what's going to get you a no-knock warrant. The man got a freaking Mercedes Benz in the front, so let's no-knock warrant this one. And, you know, it's not just the, the, the big-ticket items that they'll do it for. They will kill you over pennies and, and dimes, like literally – uh, a warrant, or just look at the case recently with G- George Floyd. What was George Floyd being accosted for? An alleged $20 counterfeit bill. $20 is what they will kill you for, or less. When they seize a person's assets, even if the person is acquitted, they don't get their property back. Where you had a gentleman who was arrested in, I don't have the article in front of me, so I forget the state. It was either Illinois, Ohio, somewhere of that nature. It was a it was a petty crime. I think he was given like a thousand dollar fine. But then on top of that, they went after and they took his uh his brand new. It was either a Land Rover or a Range Rover. It was worth forty thousand dollars. So they went to take that. And it took him going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court to finally get his vehicle back. Six years it took him to get it back. But in most cases, people don't get their property back whether or not they're acquitted. They don't get their property back. So someone could be driving a nice car right now, and they can come up with some bogus warrant to come after you and seize your property, and you're not going to get it back. And you can be totally innocent. Abolition. Wow. So we covered so much in that episode, in both episodes, episode 11 and and, uh, episode 12. So let's repeat the list of industries and subsystems uh, Max listed exploiting Eighth Amendment violations. There was the fines and fees industrial complex, the traffic tickets industrial complex, the warrant industrial complex, the bail industrial complex. Asset seizure industrial complex, police auction industrial complex, no-knock warrant industrial complex, probation industrial complex, uh, court cost industrial complex, child support industrial complex, the drug war, the police quotas, prison commissary exploitation, the prison banking industrial complex, and pay-to-stay jails. There was so much packed into that episode, and I encourage you to go back to both of them, May 24th and May 31st, uh, Eighth Amendment Parts 1 and Part 2. Part 1 was the death penalty. Part 2 was uh, dealing with the excessive uh, fines and fees. So we reached a point where we're going to start closing out the show. Uh, Don't forget, 
to tune into Live from the Plantation. It airs at 7 p.m. Central every Thursday night right here on the Abolition Today platform. That program is completely run by those in prison. You can hear their voices speaking on various issues such as prison slavery, human rights violations, and their organizing efforts across the country to end these crimes against humanity. Also, be sure to mark your calendars for two very important events coming up later this month. There's the Freedom 13th live streaming presentations and discussions on 21st century uh, abolition hosted by the PLUS party. This will be a four-day event from October 26th through 29th and can be viewed live directly from the Abolish Slavery National Network website, abolishslavery.us. And also, Decarcerate Louisiana is holding a rally to end slavery in the Louisiana criminal justice system. That will be on Wednesday, October 28th, 11 a.m. at Louisiana's Old State Capitol in Baton Rouge. You can visit the Decarcerate LA for more information, their uh, Facebook page. We'll be back October 17th, inshallah, God willing. So until then, remember to join the movement to abolish slavery at abolishslavery.us and subscribe to our Abolition Today YouTube page for all the news, information, and music you hear in this program, live streams, and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and all of your favorite podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and CastBox. So, alhamdulillah, I didn't break anything. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) I didn't break anything in the cockpit these past three weeks flying solo. I'm looking forward to Max being back in the studio with me next week, and I'm sure he'll glad to be back as well. We're going to close out the show with... Hanging Tree by Elijah Blake, a very touching song. I feel it appropriate to end the the, uh, week with that. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Underneath the hanging tree He looks just like me So tell me, am I really free? Could have been my mother Crying for my brother And everybody, everybody, everybody's praying for peace But who's gonna protect us from the police? Keep these chains on me Cause I don't wanna be another seat underneath the hanging tree I'm
Abolition. 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 Abolition.